0: Welcome to the Valley College Connection, where John Kawai and Scott Wigan, two Valley professors, engage in a conversation about success with educators and students. Each week, they'll sit down with a different guest to find out ways each of us have had to plan, persevere, and overcome to where we are now. The show will also highlight resources and services that are working to make a difference at Valley College. We are joined today by Florentino Manzano, Vice President of Student Services at Los Angeles Valley College. Thank you so much for joining us today Florentino.
1: Thank you very much and you can call me Tino. Excellent. Thank
0: you Tino. We wanted to take an opportunity here to find out a little bit more about your story, the path that led you here to Valley College. If you could take a look backwards, go as far back as you'd like to in terms of the various steps along the way that ultimately brought you to Valley College and in the position that you're at now.
1: I, You know my journey is. It's a bit interesting, I think, uh, in my life, being separated from my mother and father. I stayed in Mexico through probably 12 years old. While they were here as immigrants working the field, finally my dad reunited the entire family. There is five of us, three sisters, two brothers, mom and dad, and uh, we worked the fields. I mean, my, my uh, welcome to the United States was, okay, so then we gotta get to the Sacramento Valley and pick tomatoes. And if you've never picked tomatoes, it's, it's not fun. You know, woke up early in the morning and 5 o'clock, get lunch ready, get to the fields, get to work, while we would see the kids that live nearby us get picked up by the bus to go to school. And instead, we were going to to the field. Um, I think at one point, my mom and dad finally realized, you know, moving around through California and dragging the family, uh, settled in Oxnard. So uh, my... First six years of schooling was in the Oxnard area. I graduated from Oxnard High School. I just
0: want to know a little bit more about that experience. So you were 12 years old when you first came over here. Yes. So 12 years of schooling prior to that in Mexico. Yes. What What was that experience like? Was that a positive, negative, mixture, both?
1: Like, how would you describe that? Well, well I mean, I, I couldn't. My I couldn't tell the difference because I was not in school here. But when I first started school, I was so far advanced to what I would see my my counterpart. Parts, my disadvantage was the language. I was, you know, monolingual in English, so I had to start taking ESL courses. And of course, defined by that, uh, the math class that I had to take was like basic math because they thought it, you, he doesn't speak English, so he's having to do basic math. But by that time, I was beyond that. The world history, U.S. history, geography, science, you know, biology, all taught uh, in Mexico at a, what I would. I thought at that time advanced in comparison to what was done in the United States. Was it set up with different classes or was it one-room schoolhouse type of situation? Or what, was it? what did it look like? You know, elementary school, first through sixth grade, is one teacher similar to here, big differences. In my classrooms, there were probably 80 of us to one teacher, three to uh, a desk three students per desk you know sometimes I wonder when we're doing and saying you know there's 35 students in the class and it's too much I wonder what my my teachers in Mexico thought when there's 80 of us Uh, it's very different of course you know uh, in terms of system but in coming to the United States and now coming in into middle school and then I had different classes in the cultural shock there that was tremendous I mean I had PE For my first period, and uh, it meant you had to go do physical activity, come back, take a shower in public, which, you know, in my family you would never do that. And and being forced at that time, you know, now I think things have changed, but you had to take a shower, and, and that cultural shock was. But pretty pretty big in terms of adjustment. But you know, again, again, in my life there has been a lot of uh, challenges. But in my family there has been a lot of support. And and one of the things that that my mother and uh, father always told me, you know, the way to progress is education. So you gotta you know you gotta go to school, you gotta learn, and, and that's the way to success or or being able to be better than. And that was their idea all the time.
2: At that time, was there a, an ESL program, or were you just mainstream right from the beginning?
1: No, they did have an ESL program. I mean this. Is back 1974 I believe Uh, so there was an ESL program so I had uh, three ESL classes I had a math class and then I had a photography class because you know you don't really need English to take pictures and develop them uh, and the PE class so that was the, the traditional schedule for an ESL student you know being 12 picked up the language quickly, moved, got mainstream to regular English courses, and then went on from there.
2: Well, how were you able to to work a full day's work in the field at that age?
1: Well, when I was working, we were not going to school. You remember, you know, I said at the beginning, we went to the field, went to work, and then the kids were were going to school. Uh, It was later on that my parents decided not to follow the crops. So, In following the crops, getting from one place to the other place, you couldn't really go to school. So you had, so we worked. Uh, but but then my mom and dad decided okay well this is too much for us you know having dragging the family through the state of California because they started actually in the Calexico area and then moved through the Oxnard area all the way to Sacramento and then at the end of the year around November we went back to Mexico to enjoy the holidays and that was our routine Uh, but finally my dad and mom said you know we're gonna settle and they picked Oxnard where they worked uh, My mom worked at a a nursery where they grew flowers, and that was her work, and my dad picked lemons. And every Saturday, I got to go with him to pick lemons. Uh, But at that time, then they put us all in school. That's how the whole thing, Sibling-wise, are you middle child,
0: young child, old child?
1: I am the fourth of five, so I have a younger brother and three older sisters. I'm the first one in my family to graduate from high school. I'm the first one in my family to graduate from college. I'm the first one to graduate and have a master's degree, and I'm the first one to have a job like this. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of firsts. So, so there's a lot of firsts, and you know. But now, you know, we're going to the Dodger game, and for the season alumni, uh, and there's nine of wow. us in the family going. So my grandparents
2: also had a very similar story where my grandfather, from about 12, was basically picking the fields, Watsonville, and just following the fruit. And I remember talking to my grandmother because she started it, I think, when she was about 17, 18. And she just remembers just trying to get through a row. Yeah. Right? And just how physically exhausting getting through a row was, and she said she could only make it because all the Filipinos would help her. Yeah. right. And yeah. then they kind of know the weak ones and they would help her. And then after she had a kid, you know, you would have a blanket, right? And you right. Put
1: your put the baby down in the blanket right. and then you would do the row and then come back on the next row. It would take about about an hour. That was my brother. Yeah. You know, my brother probably, because he's six years younger than I am, and he was probably around four or five years old. And he was in a little cart and he went with us. Yeah. And, you know, but that's, you know, at that time, that that was allowed. And, you know, you know, after the farm workers movement, you know, a lot of things changed. And again, for my family, primarily my parents saying, you know, this is too much. We need to settle in a single place and raise our family. Mm-hmm. So that's how the whole opportunity for school started. So did you do pretty well at high school? It, you know, in uh, high school, you know, I was in the ESL program in 39th grade. Uh, there was a Title VII a program, which was established a bilingual program for high school. Students, so I was able to follow that and did quite well, you know, taking all of the non-English courses. I took U.S. history, biology, math, everything in Spanish. was able to successfully graduate. I think if I recall correctly, I was probably like number 30-something on a class of hundred In terms of ranking, I wasn't planning on going to college, but I did have a great counselor that said at one point, you know, you really need to explore the idea of going to a four-year university, not just to the community college, uh, because as most of us in Oxnard stayed in that area locally at the Ventura College or Oxnard College uh, and she brought somebody from Susan, made a presentation and about a, a group of us about three of us applied, got accepted and man, it t- I took the whole hour drive to get to the valley because it was really, really far. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's great stories about me starting school because Oxnard, if you've been there the weather is about 20 degree difference that I, you know, it's 80 degrees over there and it will be 100 over here so it's the morning and it's cold so I'm wearing a sweater and and, you know really uh, ready for for the morning and we get to the valley and it's like 100 (laughs) degrees in the middle of the summer and I have my sweater and I have nothing below that so we had to stop by the bookstore buy a t-shirt because it was so hot and uh, you know that was welcome to San Fernando Valley in terms of difference in community you know Oxnard if you drove past 35 miles an hour you were going too fast and you know here everything moved pretty Quick, so so you know, um, uh, made the transition to to CSUN. They have to have a great Chicano Studies department, which welcomes you, especially back in 1980. Probably not too many Latinos at that time. You know, CSUN has changed tremendously now, but you know, they're a good welcome, engaged us, uh, made us feel part of the university, and and you know, started school and uh, became involved. I was part of uh, a theater company, part of uh, student organizations, went through the Chicano Studies program, graduated, and because of the theater program, we used to do presentations at the local high schools and middle schools, you know, encouraging Latino students to uh, pursue higher education. And, uh, you know, we did it in a form where it was entertaining, similar to Teatro Campesino, you know, ours was Teatro Aslan. And so we went out to the high schools and, uh, or brought students to the university and did the presentation so that director of outreach at that time you know uh, saw me in one of the presentations and asked me you know would you like to work in the outreach office I think you will do quite well in doing presentations to parents and students and uh, I said yeah I think so. it sounds like a good idea yeah. uh, so I got this letter in the mail that said you have been selected to work in the office of outreach and I had talked with her already so I came into the office I said you know I got this letter for the job oh you're here for the interview, and I said no. Uh, <laughs> the uh, job. I'm here for the job. You know, I got how the job. She says, oh no, she's doing interviews. Let me see if she can see you. And I was wearing a tank top and uh, huaraches, you know, sandals. <laughs> and I said no, I'm not ready for an interview. So she comes out. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. So it, it turns out that it wasn't really my skill level, but the fact that I was from Oxnard, and the university needed somebody to go out to uh, to Oxnard to recruit students from that area, since I was from that community. I got the job. Mm -hmm. So I started working in the outreach office as a student worker that eventually became a professional you know, classified position working with middle school students. So we started probably uh, 1985-86 doing outreach to middle school students to prepare them at that time to be ready for admissions to the four-year university. Had Uh, had you already graduated at this point? I graduated. I, I was a student worker, graduated, and then applied in It became a a, a, what they would call their part professional. So when you originally went to CSUN, was that the
2: the plan that you would be, I guess, a community activist or community just outreach?
1: Right. No, the plan was to be a teacher, go back to Oxnard High School, and become the head coach for the soccer team. Yeah. That right. was the plan. Right. Uh, I did fulfill that dream, though I did coach the uh, the high school team for one year, but it was too much for me to go from season to the, to Oxnard and, you know, though the athletics part of it. So I abandoned that part and then stayed and focused on developing that at the university. You know, in, in working in outreach, I started with middle school and eventually jumped over a lot into parental uh, type of outreach. We established uh, what I think is probably one of the first programs that dealt with the whole family, bring in the parent, the student, but also the siblings, so that we will have a full approach on how to create an environment for learning in the, in the home with parent coaching and student coaching with, you know, some of the most difficult schools in the San Fernando Valley. What kind of
2: things would you do for the parent coaching? You
1: know, the idea of creating a learning environment, right? In most families in our experience were a single parent or two parent with three, four kids living in a single one-bedroom apartment. So how do you do that when the TV is going on or the cooking is going on or, you know, that schedules are different? So we created a lot of modules that allow parents to understand the need for structure, you know, study time for, and then encouraging learning habits for the kids in terms of the older one teaching the younger one and then sharing that that information at dinner because you know one of the Latino components always is that you kind of have dinner together all the time and there's a lot of family time we had this concept that we should do quinceañera for education so, you know when you have a quinceañera if you guys know mm-hmm. what that is a 15th uh, birthday party you know the families come together and pitch in I'll buy the dress you pay the DJ I'll pay for for the, the hall, we created a module that says now for education, you'll pay for the books, you pay ah. for one class, you pay for another class, and then you'll be able to, as a family, then best investment that you could ever make because of the experience, you'll gonna have a degree. You know, so we did a number of things like that, and because of the background of working on a theater company, things evolved, and there was an opportunity for me to work in the College of Arts there at CSUN for their student equity uh, program. Uh, it was brand new in terms of effort, at uh, CSU, so I became first director of the student equity program in the College of Arts, and that was completely new and different. I was working with theater students, with music students, uh, in arts so we started, you know, doing just regular advising, making students uh, you know, onboarding them, doing orientation, making sure they feel comfortable in uh, in a field that, that were not many students at that time, that was the term we use, uh, which were African American, Native Americans and Latino students. So has the terminology of equity has it changed over the years or is it yes, I mean and we have had a number of laws that have changed the way we address things in terms of what we do. You know, at the one time it was minority, right? So we had the minority engineering program, the minority business program. Eventually we've had uh, the student affirmative action program. We've always had the educational opportunity program, you know, as a result of the 60s. Um, A lot of them socioeconomic, but there were a few uh, that were ethnic driven and under-representation was the, the driving force. With Session 109, I believe, or one of those, I forget what number it is, they, it did away with affirmative action. So all of, all of the names had to change to. Uh, after that, uh, then it just became, you know, student resource centers or advisement centers, uh, no longer focused on ethnicity, but mostly on socioeconomic. But it's still probably the same population. So
2: do you think with this vocabulary change that there's more or less support or more understanding or less understanding of so what the role of I guess what equity is
1: now? Well, there's lack of focus. I think what is happening to us now is a rebirth because mm-hmm. we are now are now again using the right terminology, right? We're doing right. things for Latino students. We're doing things for African-American students, whereas at one point you couldn't do that because it, it's discriminatory. When you know the most disfranchised, less represented, less successful are these particular populations, especially when we're dealing with African-American students, male, and Latino males, uh, you know, their success rate is not good. So what do we do to address that population? And, and that back in my time, when I was a student, I was a focus. I was a Latino male that was academically prepared and successful. So they were going to help me graduate. Not because I was economically disadvantaged, but because I was that particular ethnic group and that gender. I think going back now to that kind of help. So me working in that environment and working, you know, we, we started changing a bit of the curriculum and what was offered at the university, so as part of the season for the Theater department, there was a Latino play. Uh, as part of the music department, there was a Latino concert. As part of the uh, art department, uh, we had a number of uh, exhibits that focus on on Latino artists or African American artists or Native American artists. So we decided that you know if we're not going to have programming in the department that reflects the community, there's never going to be parts for those Right. So it it kind of evolved to that. I think now season probably is one of the most diverse universities when it comes to programming, because they bought that idea from 1980, Mm -hmm. uh, and they've been doing it for for a number of years. Working at the university, you know, there's always opportunities, and there was a position available here at Valley College as an associate dean, for matriculation, which at that time, I didn't even know what that meant, (laughs) right? At at, at this point, you're the equity director. By that time, it had evolved into the College of Arts, media and communication on a reorganization of the university. And so now not only was I working for the equity population for, by the entire college doing the academic advisement and support services for, for the college.
0: Were, were you, uh, as you sort of described how, how you went from a student who was involved in Chicano studies and in theater and, and doing the sort of outreach work with the high schools, how you were sort of noticed like, hey, this guy's doing a great job with it, got the outreach job, you moved into the, the equity position. Was that something that you would actively pursue or was it, again, that someone recognized something in you or was it part of your network or a combination of things that
1: sort of said, hey, this is the right guy for Yes, both, right? You know, I was very fortunate to have uh, a boss at that time who was the director of the EOP program there who oversaw all of the centers who, you know, in talking said, you know, that might be a good opportunity for you, you should consider, you know, applying for that job. And I, at one point, was very comfortable where I was. I liked what I was doing. You know, I liked getting laughs from the students. I liked the interaction with the parents. I was making tons of money, according to me because I never thought I would ever make that kind of money. And then I have benefits, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the big deal for my family is if you have benefits, you already made it. So, so my family was very proud of me. You know, I was working at the university. It was probably more than they ever thought I would ever do in my life. So I was comfortable, but you know, having a good supervisor, uh, who wanted to, I guess, encourage development for right. me, uh, encouraged me to apply, and um, I was successful in getting that particular position. And uh, you know, here I am. When did you go to grad school? Uh, well, I was the director of uh, uh, student equity. At CSU has a program that if you're an employee of the university, for five bucks, yeah, you can go to school and get your degree. And,
0: and that's a part-time thing, right? Like six units a semester, or, or what does that look
1: like? You could do so it full-time difficult? if oh, you, you can... want to. I was okay. full-time employee, so I did it part-time. Okay. So it took me about Three years to finish the master's in educational leadership and policy studies, but you know, five dollars <laughs> as a master, you can't beat that. Was right. there anything
2: specific about your master's that, that you found really important or fruitful?
1: The majority of the people in the program were uh, secondary school principals, right. uh, vice principals that wanted to, you know, move in administration at the LAUSD. Very small number of higher education, definitely none community college because mm-hmm. that's now back in 1993 so there was no 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 focus on, on college there were a few of us who had as an option higher education which included community college and one of my teachers was a former uh, president Alice Thurston mm-hmm. for Val uh, College she was a retired president uh-huh. and she taught the higher education Course there, so there's an you know there's great experience in the program. Uh, I, I mean, from uh, understanding the history, the finance of it, the law of it, the, the law, uh, to you know a number of workshops that we did um, prepared us in reality to really take on uh, administrative jobs. How
0: was your experience working full time and then being in grad school? Yeah, where- Easy to juggle. Were you always sort of good at that? I mean, was that something that you had experience and success with as an undergrad too? I'm working full time. Right, (laughs) right. I mean, that has never really really
1: been a different uh, of experience. I mean, I had to work. Yeah. Even though I had financial aid, parents couldn't provide any additional support for, you know, transportation or housing or, or just simply eating. I I always tell that greatest invention ever was el pollo loco coming up with a BRC beans, rice, right uh, burrito because uh, that was like ninety nine cents or forty nine cents. I don't recall exactly what it was, but you know that was a full meal. So so for that, uh, you know, I had to work. So that that was never really a, a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. So you know working full time and at that time now married children you know doing that program it was a little tough a
0: little juggling there
1: But, you know, but again, you know, the the determination, the motivation, and the support, you know, I was very, very fortunate throughout my life to have had great support from my family, from my friends, and then, you know, later on marrying and my wife and my kid, you know, understanding that, you know, today Jack is cooking because we don't have time, or it's uh, Ronald, or it's the colonel. Carl. (laughs) Carl, you know, it's uh, the Wendy's guy, (laughs) you know. <laughs> you know, somebody's cooking, but not us. So that's what you're getting for dinner. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that kind of thing, uh, you know, kind of worked out for me. So how old were your kids when you were in school? The baby was a baby. I mean, I, one was like two years old and then the other one came later on. And remember, I was at CSUN during the earthquake. Oh, uh, I was working in 94 there. And uh, that also added, I know, another dimension because, you know, in adapting to that work environment, Working out of trailers and true offices, so we had students that graduated that never saw a true brick and mortar dirt, or whatever you would call yeah. that right. building uh, for instruction. Well, why
2: don't you describe the whole thing with the with the with the earthquake, because. Maybe a lot of
1: the people who are who are listening,
2: out of their generation, no, weren't born yet, weren't, yeah. <laughs> don't know about it. Uh, right,
1: right, right, right. Well, you know, the earthquake, I believe, was January 17th, around that time, and we were getting ready to start the spring semester. So we actually were not able to start the spring semester as scheduled, and our first day was Valentine's Day, February 14th. That's when uh, all of us kind of returned back to work and and getting started. The university did an amazing job at setting up uh, temporary trailers with the help of FEMA circus-like tents that became the the, uh Offices for admissions and records, and uh, the large offices, you know, had to be placed on that. There were brand new buildings that were scheduled to open that spring that did not open, like the College of Business, uh, because they, they were red tagged. The right. art building was red tagged. The science building was red tagged. So so there are a number of places were not, uh, you know, we the, the, we were not able to use. So they brought all these trailers, and the campus mobilized, and uh, and we started, and that went on. For a while, and if you go back to CISA now, it doesn't look the same way and it doesn't feel the same way. And, and it's you know, it in that is a, a blessing in disguise, I think. I always say to people because that was the genesis for the university to change mm-hmm. to how it changed. I mean, they had plans and they were planning on, on expanding, but that helped accelerate that change.
2: So, did they have to um, destroy a lot of the buildings? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. They, they, they uh, you know, you have a brand new uh, Manzanita Hall, which is. It's it's, as you know the old theater arts building kind of attached to that uh, because the art building had to be demolished Uh, the faculty office building had to be demolished the library wings were uh, separated and they had to be refurbished and put back on Mm -hmm. uh, and then restoring the new buildings in the college of business whole art department got moved to a different so yes I mean you know the science I mean uh, now you got to go see it and it's just like if you had pictures of it that's how it has evolved I mean like this campus is evolving I've seen these two transfer transformations you know coming here in 1999 and being all in the one single story buildings and the point of reference to a lot of you do you know the building with two stories the campus center that's the only one we have and then of course the uh, uh, health sciences building came on board and of course now we have the lark we have the you know the administration building that is beautiful and the student union all these transformation that is helping us really uh, you know uh, really gear us up for for student success that has a lot to do with with how you feel about where you go to school Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas we were a little bit and now you know as we're building new here I think that's gonna help us to create that you know carry that message that we're serious about student success and we are updating and and being current Uh, sometimes you know you you feel like you're retro
2: (laughs) I mean I I came here what nine (laughs) years ago I'd never heard of this college and I'd only applied because I wanted to practice so I thought You know, I'll I'll practice because it's too far out of my driving range. And when I when I drove over here, it took me only 45 minutes. I called my wife, like, I might want this job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was already like I hadn't prepared. I was like, you know, and then I was walking around. She's like, what's it like? I was like, it's like a real comfortable high school. But even within that eight years, we've we've completely rebuilt it doesn't feel that
1: way anymore. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, you know, I have students coming back that tell me, wow, you know, doesn't look the same. now. it really feels like a college. We've always been a college, you know, because really the buildings a lot of times don't make things happen, yeah. but, but the field, you know, where you're going and, and the appearance has a lot to do with with making students feel comfortable and engaged and part of something, and, and you know, it's, it's pride too. For, for that. the University level, you know, that happened. That was my experience in, in learning how students felt and, and having students say to me, you know, I was never really in a true building uh, at this end, and I'm graduating. So, you know, so that went on for a while. You know, so, so getting to Valley College and coming back, it was like, okay, you know, it's like grown up high school. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, it, it's a it's a strong community, uh, a welcoming, uh, part of something. You know, that's how I felt. You know everybody, everybody knows You, you you know, you're kind of on a first-name basis a lot of the times with students, with uh, faculty, with administrators. Uh, it's a very comfortable feeling. The, f- the first day I came here, the, again, this was completely out of, i would never driven anywhere
2: near the valley. I'm from East LA and I remember coming in my first day to the math class and we had a professor who was a, a paraplegic and he, he rolled up to me and he says, just so you know, this is my dream job. I came here as a student and my dream was to um, be, a, be a professor here and work with my mentor. And I went to CSUN, and then they hired me, and I've had a 40 year career here, and happiest guy in the world, you know? Yeah, and, and it, was a, it was a real great way to be greeted, but I really do feel that, that sense here, you know, that people have really laid roots here, and this is a, a dream for a lot of us that are, that are here.
0: There sure is a, a pattern of, of folks who were students here, and, and now are working here which, you know, it, it brings a sense of community that's hard to find. Yeah.
2: Were you a student here, too? I was not a
0: student. I was a tutor here. And so I was a student at CSUN mm-hmm. um, in undergrad, and, and then I was hired as a tutor in the writing center um, and never really left. Right. Yeah, that's
1: 2002. It happens to a lot of people yeah, here yeah. In, in that regard. And I, and I think that's what creates a lot of community. Even if you were not a student here, once you get here, I think that there is that uh, kind of feeling that you get, you know, kind of got home, something to, to that degree, you know people eat together and you know that's kind of rare yeah. uh, you don't find it See lots of people you know coming together to eat and and that has always been a big thing for of mine is that if you eat together you're gonna be cool because uh, right. if you can do that you can do a lot of other things <laughs> right so so so, so you, you see that uh, the friendship uh, from 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 different people here. So,
2: what was your first responsibility at, at Valley College?
1: I was an associate dean responsible for matriculation, which is the old three S P, the Student Success and Support Program. And my welcome here was, uh, you know, here is the book, here's what we're supposed to be doing, and we have a visit from the State Chancellor's Office in four weeks. So you have to be ready for that. I said, okay, <laughs> that up. sounds good to So Sure, no problem. <laughs> right. So, so that was that was my responsibility, and at that time the components of matriculation included assessment, orientation, admissions, counseling, follow-up. I forget the other one There was... So, so it's
2: how, how someone comes into the school.
1: And gets out. Okay. It's the full... Matriculation. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. the whole matriculation process. It's, it's the exit part, too. Mm-hmm. In the change for uh, the law, they, they kind of changed the way funding came and only focused on assessment, orientation, and counseling. So they left out the... Um, admissions and records part of it uh, in terms of funding but it's still part of law that we would need to do that uh, you know going back a little bit uh, it was not required for us to do these things we the student didn't have to do an assessment a student didn't have to do an orientation a student didn't have to see a counselor it was not required they were it was available for them and we would encourage them and the law changed that it would be required for them to participate or else they would lose priority registration uh if they didn't do it.
0: And you're you're talking the twenty twelve law.
1: Right. Okay. So for right. all so that time it
0: was just all optional.
1: Right. Yes. right. And you think that's good or bad? and uh, no, it's good. Students don't do optional. Right? If you're told, hey, you you can, but you don't have to and you won't do it. It takes time. You know, we are trying to improve the way we do things so it does not become an obstacle as a lot of the time students interpret that, man, you know, if I got to go see the counselor, or if I got to go do the orientation, if I got to do this, then it delays. Uh, what I'm supposed to be doing so we are trying to onboard the student differently so that they get to register quicker and on the right courses in the right plan so that time to degree is less, that, you know, it's, it, that's difficult.
0: Yeah, and that, that's the conversation that students might not initially understand is that by doing all those things a better chance that you're going to transfer or graduate with 60 units right. as opposed to 90 units or 100 units.
1: Right, yeah. or, you know, the, not doing, not preparing for the assessment back in the day is what meant you're going to have to do five courses in, in you could have just done it in two if you had a little preparation. So what do you think is the, the biggest problems in terms of getting a kid in and then
2: getting them to graduate? What are the large hurdles that we're, we're trying to deal with? Math yeah. faculty.
1: Yeah, no, just
2: joking. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you that. We are the reason why we're gonna. We are up the up. reason why people don't come to school and people drop out. Well,
1: math, right? It is a big obstacle. Yeah. Absolutely, and and Scott and I have discussed this, and, and and how do we ensure students have the critical thinking skills? And it's a really math that only option, and we have not diversified the opportunity to say there are other way. Uh, you know, it doesn't really have to be just math, because not everybody is keen on being able to do. Uh, that particular subject, but when I went to school, season plan A, picked one of the four. So math was one of, not one of them. You know, I pick communications and I pick English. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have to do the philosophy or, or nor the math. And look, I'm a VP of now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where do you get these critical thinking skills, right? Do you really just get them because you did pass math class or not? Uh, I, I don't know, so, but, you know, it's readiness. It's really readiness. Uh, you know, a lot of our students don't have the opportunities that many other students have on their K-12 path uh, and even at home. So if they don't have that readiness, they're going to have to start, uh, you know, from scratch. And we are the opportunity school. And that's a great thing because I think, you know, otherwise many, many, many people would not have, you know, achieved or have been successful if it wasn't for a community college. So we take students who are 18 years old. They don't have to have graduated from high school. Uh, You know, the university path is you have to have all these requirements and you have the skill level and then we'll take you. If we were that, you know, our success rate would be very different. So readiness is one of those things and how do we manage to be able to catch everybody to the same level of performance you know, by the second or third semester, and 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 oftentimes we're not able to do that, and and I think that delays some people. So, how long were you associate dean for? Three years, I think, uh-huh. something like that. Um, uh, then uh, there was an opportunity. Um, the dean of admissions and records um, uh, retired or left or something or the other. Uh, so there was an opportunity there. Um, my boss at that time, the VP of Student Services, asked me. You know. Uh, Can you oversee that area for a little while while we find one? And I said, nope. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, there was a, there, there was a need, and uh, so I said, okay, you know, how long will this be, and for how long? And that lasted, I think, like 12 years, <laughs> until she left. So I became the dean of admissions and records, and my area of responsibility included that, international students, students, and then eventually it morphed into a number of all different things. She left, and in her the uh, same thing, she became the vice chancellor for institutional affairs at the mm-hmm. district office. You know, I'm going to be gone. Um, do you mind watching the store while I'm gone? <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> really? No, I don't want to do that either. Uh, but, you know, again, no, my opportunities have come. I I want to say because people have recognized that my work and what I was doing at that time and thought maybe at that time it would be good for you to kind of do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I've always had to compete because the other positions then open up and then you know, you get to compete with the rest of the world for positions, so nothing has been given to me, but uh, but opportunity definitely has, has has been offered to me, and, and the VP of Student Services at that time, uh, you know, gave me that with the president, and I was acting vice president for about a year, and then competed for the position, and here I am like six years later. Six years later. Mm-hmm. So as you move up these levels, what is the
2: difference in terms of, I guess, the job in terms of as you bump
1: each level of management? Contact with student. I mean, I really miss the time when I was doing uh, the associate dean or when I was the director of the equity program at, at CSUN. I was working with students, you know, I was like daily interacting with students. Uh, my interaction with students oftentimes is now with a student that has reached the level of I need to talk to the vice president because I'm really mad or whatever happened at what office or I'm just not getting an answer that I want so I want to talk to you. So usually it's complaint that I get to deal with. I try really hard to go out and, and shop for students and say, come on, let's talk about you because, you know, I want to be helpful and I just deal with problems so I think that's primarily the difference is Mm -hmm. uh, that as you are in a higher level capacity you often are dealing more with issues and problems Uh, but I with Scott once the trees grow out there, uh, you know, they're going to be, we're gonna be the model community college in the state of California where people are gonna come and ask us, hey, how do you do that? Instead of us going to ask. Uh, and so that's the goal. And that, that's one of the
0: things I, I have to say that I've appreciated over the years in working with you, Tino, is that you have been, uh, I think, a champion for, for having a vision for what Valley College, you know, could be, what what we're capable of, of doing. Um, and it's, I think it's providing that that kind of lens of leadership that that helps us to sort of, of, of think bigger than we currently are, um, and so we've been having that and kind of joking for a while now about <laughs> this, the, the, these trees outside of Tino's office as they were, you know, younger saplings and sort of watching them grow, and you know as we try to grow along with those, and and here we are now, you know, uh, ready for for this next academic year um, ahead of the college is all sorts of exciting things. We have changes in the law with AB 705. We have uh, the college's involvement now with Guided Pathways. Um, as we sort of, of look at this work ahead of us, the campus is continuing to change, the, the Valley Media Arts Complex there, you see it growing every day as they're adding another fence and another brick and mortar piece to the building over there. Um, as, as you sort of look out at the college and where we're at in, in terms of the next five years, what, what are you excited about?
1: What, what are you What are you thinking in terms of like here's where we're placement into transfer English (laughs) on the first semester? That is so awesome, you know. I think that is really going to clear up a lot of the myths, right? Uh, Do we have we been needing four, five, six semester or five, six, seven unit courses to achieve success? Is that really the key? more classes instead of let's focus on you learning the skills that you need in the one course and let's get you out of here let's get you to the next level that you want to do and I think if we're able to provide that support and that environment that creates the 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 dynamic where students are motivated we are dealing with resilient students. We are not dealing with people who just get up in the morning and say, oh man, I'm going to go to school. These people work full-time, they have families, they got two jobs, uh, they're dealing with illness, with poverty, homelessness. I I mean, imagine that and then be successful at school. I I mean, we're not dealing with just regular students that, you know, uh, where spoon-fed or something or the other. I don't know if that's the right term, but uh, but we are dealing with students that are, 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 are... survivors. Yeah, and they're they're motivated, and they, they need this. Uh, but again, you know, there are a lot of uh, consequences to people's actions and things that uh, they have to deal with. So do I feed my kids, or do I go to school a lot of the time? So they may have to abandon, and do we understand that? Um, and and who, who comes to this college? Uh, most of us don't live near the campus, Mm -hmm. 45 minutes away, right? And we're really happy, press the button, get into our garage, into our nice home, but we have no clue what's in our neighborhood and how they're living, and what are the standards for them to come to school. Uh, I've never seen some, I mean, Uber and Lyft, I don't know if this is a commercial or not, that's the best thing ever, because it has created the opportunity for people to be mobile and be able to get to school. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past, riding the bus uh, hours to get to school was disastrous. To get from Panorama, which is only like five miles away, may take you an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Uber and Lyft can get you here in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So so that is changing, and the way we learn, distance education, all of these things uh, are going to facilitate for our students that have the motivation to be successful. We just have to be ready to change for them.
0: And that, that's sort of, as you described, the resiliency of our students, and, and you know, they, they, they sacrifice so much, so many of them, to come here. And, and oftentimes in sort of the college success narrative, you know, it's been popular to use that work of Angela Duckworth and this idea of grit you know, here's what makes people successful is how how much grit you have, and when you have an obstacle, the likelihood of whether or not you're going to overcome that obstacle and stay on your path. And then one of the critiques of that, which, I mean, you, you, you described in not so many words, it's not the students who don't have the grit. The students who are coming here are the, perhaps some of the grittiest people ever. The question of grit is for all of us, perhaps, at the college, and to what extent we're able to receive those students. You know, it's that other way of thinking is, it's not that the students are ready for the college, is the college ready for the students, is another one of those sort of clichés that are floating around there right now.
1: Right. And, okay. and here we
0: are, you know, are we ready for these students coming in, and,
1: and direct placement in English, direct placement into math. Right. You know, are, are we Are we ready? No. I don't think so. Yeah. I, I don't think so. And I think there is a lot of resistance because it means change, mm-hmm. right? And change, oftentimes, we're not really good at, at accepting it because it's unknown. Mm-hmm. We're not used to that. Um, you know, so we like routine. Uh, one of the things that I learned about the United States in coming from Mexico is that routine keeps you sane, but it can drive you crazy because you must do things, you know, you got to get up in the morning, brush your teeth, and then, you know, it's, it's routine, uh, and, and it, it, it kind of changes your life if you start getting out of that routine. It's, it's just, it, you know, it doesn't work. The pragmatism of U.S. society, right, allows us to, uh, okay, you know, it's only saying to do these things, so we got to do them that way, but our students are not doing it the traditional way. in in the diversity that sometimes we celebrate and talk about and say you know we're diverse and we appreciate diversity and all of that and as soon as we see it it's like wow you know I don't really like it (laughs) I'm not going to tell tell anybody but you know here I have this visual learner I have this person asking me to come in like Ten minutes late because they have to drop off the kids at school. Has this one trying to leave early because they got to make the job? You know, it's it's not diversity, ethnicity, gender that we think about. It's this diversity of needs mm-hmm. and how to meet all of that. And we are not, I I don't think enough flexible to say yeah, that, that's okay. You know, you can go ahead and leave early and you can come in late mm-hmm. and it's not going to change a lot of the outcome because I'm going to facilitate all of that. Uh, but instead, we says uh, no. Nobody can come in late. We're gonna lock the door. And if you leave early, okay, that's gonna be noted on the uh, you were absent, uh, and it's gonna count as your participation. So you know, the classroom is important. Uh, what's outside the classroom is important. How do we support students, and how do we all kind of live in the environment that we're in to try to provide support for students? So my question is that.
2: I, I love what you said at the end about how, having teachers that are, that are more flexible. And I think that the problem is, is that when we see our regular templates for our syllabi, it's all about these are the laws and these are the rights that it gives me as a professor. Okay. And the question is, how do we structurally change our messaging to the teachers that this sort of legalism isn't what we actually want from you? Because the materials that are given to professors when they come in are, these are the boundaries of what gets you in trouble and not getting to it gets you in trouble and you feel that if I don't follow this legalism that I'll get in trouble when really it's the opposite so I tend to be the 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 teacher that they always transfer the problem students to because you know like you know we see each other and we you know like trouble trouble, trouble understand its own right <laughs> so uh, And I tend to also get a lot of students with uh, disability and accommodations, because I don't have a problem saying, this rule applies to this person for their situation, this person applies, this rule applies to this person in their situation, and if you want to come to me and tell me your situation, we'll come up with a rule that's fair for you too. Mm -hmm. But this sort of idea idea of situational rules, it's not, I guess it opens you up to, to a lawsuit, it could, it could open you up to implicit bias. I still do it, but the question is how do we institutionalize sort of that ability to do that, you know, or the, the desire to do that? Well,
0: I think to some extent it's, it's a discussion of culture, which we talk a lot about here, but what is the culture that we have in terms of, of how teachers feel about? that very situation of students who have a diverse set of needs. Is it a culture of empathy or is it some sort of culture of, that gets blurred with standards where we start to say, you know, I have particular standards and the standards say, you know, because I'm training you for the quote-unquote real world that you have to be here when the bell rings, so to speak, and you can't leave until the class is over. Is it,
2: is, that's, that's sort of a cultural thing, isn't it, in terms of how faculty? I think there's two, there's two pots, right? You have the pot of teachers who say, this is my standard, right? I'm paid to be here from eight to nine. If you're not here from eight to nine, that's that's a problem, right? Or or I have a test on this day, and if you have a job on that day, hey, was right? So I don't know that you're gonna change that person, but there are a lot of teachers here who I would love to be more accommodating. I would love to work toward the specific needs of a student, but I don't know if I'll get in trouble or not.
1: And I I, I don't think it's about uh, lowering the standard or changing the standard is about meeting the standard in a diverse way, right? right? right. And, and that's the challenge that a lot of us may not necessarily capture is that because you're allowing one student to skip a test because the parent died, uh, or the, you know, they did need to get to pick up the kid because something happened, um, it's, it's an exception. It is not the standard, and and I think we get caught up all the time. Is that then that becomes my standard because I allowing people to do all of these things? No, I mean there is always. I mean you have relationship with your students and you have understanding. Uh, we would not have employees if we were set to standards because many of us don't meet it, uh, and we have lives, right? And things happen to us. So how do how do how do we? Uh, I adapt to this changing environment and I what I'm saying is that school is not the same as if we was five years ago or ten years ago or 15 years ago then but the teachers are the same yeah so how do we evolve to what is the change that is necessary and you know I and as we do more research and as we see this generations coming up and you know how they interact I think I'm a baby boomer, or at the tail end of a baby boomer. I am completely different than my child, who is 23 years old, right? Uh, the way she learns, the way she uh, interacts with other people. You know, I just got married about uh, two weeks ago. Uh, my 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 stepchildren. I have a 16-year-old. Completely different. Completely different on how she's learning. Now. If she comes to this college and you're gonna try to teach her the same way that I was taught, I don't think it's gonna work, right? So how do we change, not only teaching, you know, and because I'm in student services, you know, or it's, it's, how do we change services? How do we onboard the student and, you know, the old uh, idea that you had to meet with a person. Uh, but most of the time they're interacting with their little machine. Right? So how do we push things out to them so they can just have it on their phone? Mm-hmm. So a number of things, and, and I'm probably not the right one because at my age, my experience is different. But when have we bothered to say, hey, how would you like to do, learn, learn it or how would you like us to prepare for this? Uh, and, and we need to engage a little bit more of that. And, and that's a little bit that we are going to start doing a little bit more is, is asking, hey, how would you like us to help you? Because uh, I'll, I'll, how do we want to push information out to you? They may not even want it.
0: Right.
1: I email, d- d- don't even know what that is.
0: Right. Yeah. That, that definitely sounds like looking forward, this opportunity that we have ahead of us. Right. In, mm-hmm. in terms of how responsive can we be to our community, mm-hmm. um, perhaps in ways that we, you know, we, we really haven't done before.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not a four-year institution. We are the Opportunity School. And as long as we learn that, and, uh, and that as people walking onto our campus, they're not doing it in the same way they would do it when you went to school. Right. And a lot of us, you know, I didn't get an opportunity to go to a community college, but those that have went to community college oftentimes says, well, I did it. Well, of course, you know, but that, that's not the focus. The focus is can the student that is in your class or is coming to your office or is asking for help, do it. Yeah. It's not about you anymore. It's about that one that you're helping out and can they do it? And it's not the same standard for you because you may have had a different set of skills and background. Uh, you may not be the first person in the... in the. Uh, every time we do graduation uh, and as, when we do focus like the Latino graduation or the African American graduation, the number one thing I hear is, I'm the first one in my family to graduate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so when we are now saying, and I'm the 15th person in my family to graduate, we're not going to have that experience but it continues to be our role as a community college to provide that opportunity and it will be August 27th and we're going to have hundreds of students trying to start that day. And I don't think we're ever going to dissuade people to, to say you have to do this in November unless we change the rules like the four years that you need to apply a year in advance. Mm-hmm. Big difference on how do we prepare students. And a lot of the times we do comparison that way. Well, you know, when I was at UCLA, they did this. Or when I was at USC, they did this. When I was at CSUN, they did this. Well, welcome to LA Valley College. Mm-hmm. This is how we do it here.
0: Right.
2: So if you were going to talk to someone younger, uh, someone nineteen, twenty, who wanted to do, sort of have your pathway, work in administration, work as a community activist, an organizer. What advice would you give them?
1: Follow your heart. Really, that's really what it is. You know, a lot of your gut feeling of what you want to do leads you to paths, right? And and, and like me, uh, surround yourself uh, with people that support you. And and the uh, people come out of the woodwork. I mean, they, they just come out of nowhere. You know, you're not even looking for a mentor, and they are there. Because, you know, that's the other beauty of education. The majority of us that are involved are in it for that to help students. And if you come across somebody, you're gonna help them. And ask, you know, get involved, get engaged. Don't, don't wait for us to engage you. We should, but if we do not, you do. Uh, and ask, and, and go ask for help. Uh, and, and I think it will materialize. It will happen for whatever you wanna do. Um, and I, I'm a big proponent As you have to be ready. Uh, you gotta, you have to be ready. So, so not expecting that things are going to be handed to you, it's not going to happen. So you have to do your part too as a student. So it, I always share my experience with other students and I say, I did my part. When I graduated, I had the GPA that was needed to be successful. So yeah, I had my ups and downs and a lot of challenges and yeah, I may have ditched. Couple of days here and there, and got in trouble a couple of times. But you know, the focus continued to be academic preparation and performance to be able to to, 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 to be successful. Uh, my parents instilled that in me. Uh, they they're still doing it to the little ones. Uh, if my dad is ninety five, and my dad my mom is eighty seven. They're still alive and live with me, and their 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 tune is still the same for the little ones. You know, education is the path to success.
0: People want to get a hold of you, Tino. After hearing this podcast, what's the best way? Send you an
1: email? Uh, Yes, uh, uh, because texting takes me like a long time. My daughter will send me like... 20 texts before I can respond to one. Uh, I'm on the website, right? I'm I'm pretty searchable. Florentino Manzano, VP of Student Services. You'll find my email. Uh, I do respond. Uh, I may not do it quickly, but I I, I answer everybody. If I don't have an answer, I I look for somebody who does. Um, There's always phone, 818-947-2691. And if I don't answer the phone, somebody will, and they'll get a message to me. And I'm always at the top of the pyramid over in Student Services. If you go up the steps, right there, big old office that says Vice President of Student Services. Uh, So
0: you can't miss me. Thank you so much for for taking time out of your day, sitting down, sharing your your story, your insights with us, much appreciated. You've been listening to the Valley College Connection radio show and podcast with professors Scott Wigand and John Kawai. If you would like to be a guest, recommend a topic, or find out more information, please email kvcm at lavc.edu. That's kvcm at lavc.edu. This has been a production of 95.1 KVCM Monarch
2: Radio, The Voice of Valley College, and The Broadcasting Club. Thank you for listening.